From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in and welcome to my very first episode as an associate editor of The Podvocate. I'm your host, Naka Ugu, and today we are delving into the world of education law. Specifically, we will discuss the intersection of legislation and the school-to-prison pipeline by focusing on Illinois Senate Bill 100. What is Illinois Senate Bill 100? Why is it significant for education law? What are the recent developments with this law? What lessons can we learn generally about the implementation of this law? How do we use legislation to empower students and dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline? And finally, what role does reimagination and creativity play in this work? Jackie Ross teaches the education law practicum and supervises Sufio Chicago here at the law school. Sufio stands for Stand Up For Each Other, and it is an education law project of the Civitas Child Law Clinic. In this role, Jackie provides direct representation to parents and students in school discipline, special education, and bullying cases. She also provides supervision and training to law students like myself who provide legal information and advocacy on education law matters. Jackie previously served as a staff attorney and Equal Justice Works Fellow at Equip for Equality. Jackie sat down with me to discuss these questions and more. Please note all opinions expressed on the pod are solely those of the individual and do not express the views or opinions of guests, employers, or Loyola University, Chicago. Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Podvocate. Of course. Happy to be here. So I wanted to just start off. I wanted you to tell our listeners a little bit about some of the experiences you've had across the spectrum of special education advocacy in the legal world. And I'd love to hear as well, what sparked your desire to pursue a career in this area of the law? Sure. Um, I started off as a special education teacher. Um, I thought that I would always be a teacher. I love teaching, Um, but I I taught at a private therapeutic day school, which is uh, basically a school designed for students with needs too severe to like be met in the public school. Um, So they would go to a therapeutic day school. It's meant to be kind of, you know, a placement for a year to a few years, um, kind of get the kids the like super intensive education that they need to be able to return to their regular school and be successful. Um, but what I found was that my students who had parents who had money and could afford special education attorneys could stay at my school as long as they needed whereas the students who, whose families couldn't afford that, those attorneys were forced to leave before they were ready and just weren't really kind of accessing the protections of special education law. 
So I, I went to law school with a very specific purpose of representing low-income students with disabilities once I got out. And could you speak a little bit to your current role at Loyola? Yes, I am a staff attorney who practices within the child law clinic. Um, I teach education law um, and I supervise SUFIO, which is an education project that operates out of the child law clinic. Um, We provide free services, um, kind of full spectrum education services to pre-K through 12 families who are facing, you know, obstacles in school, whether that's like they're not able to get enrolled because the district is being really rigid about the kind of records that they need to enroll a student, or maybe they are unfairly disciplining a student um, to students with special education needs where those needs aren't being met. And so um, I supervise law students um, who do the intakes and then help me work on those cases. Awesome. And as just for the listeners of the podvocate, I am one of those law students in Jackie's education law practicum. But a phrase that you often use with us in class that I love is let's put a full court press. One, I love that phrase because you may or may not know this, but I used to play AU basketball and I really do believe that ball is life. Uh, So before I get too carried away with this metaphor, were you ever a basketball kid, Jackie? Oh, my basketball career was very short-lived. I, um, I once made a basket for the wrong team, and I was called Wrong Way Ross after that. Um, I quit shortly after. Wrong, wrong Way Ross, everyone. Uh, that's, that's great, Jackie. Well, okay, so besides the basketball metaphor, I also love this phrase because I really do believe that you are truly a fierce and zealous advocate for your clients. I wanted to hear from you, Jackie, what does full court press type of advocacy mean to you? Is this something you feel like your time at Loyola helped solidify, or maybe this is something from after graduation, but I'd love to just kind of hear your perspective on that term when it comes to the work you do in law. Yeah, uh, I think that it, it means, you know, trying to solve a problem at um, as many different kind of angles as you can. Um, So we're trying to represent clients um, zealously. And at the same time, we're trying to kind of pull together those experiences and and what we see keeps coming up as more systemic issues and then trying to solve it in a more holistic way. Um, And I think everybody has the the goal of being... um, like multifaceted in their approach um, to legal issues, but I'm just very, very lucky that I came back home to Loyola and that the child law clinic and just Loyola's law school in general allows me to do that. And so um, an example is, is I, when I was a law student, um, Miranda Johnson, uh, my supervisor uh, now, you know, in, as an attorney at Loyola, but then also um, as a student, um, she kind of pulled me in on a case where uh, a family was being ticketed for uh, their child not going to school. Um, 
the, so it's actually the parent was facing truancy fines. And by the time, basically this parent moved, um, by the time she kind of, the tickets caught up to her, she was facing thousands and thousands of dollars in fines. Um, so I represented the family in a municipal hearing um, over these tickets. And the whole situation just like enraged Miranda and I so much um, that I published or I wrote a paper on it for um, an education class when I was at Loyola. Um, and then eventually like Miranda, you know, she didn't, it, it kept bothering her and um, Anina Weinberg at the Legislation Policy uh, Clinic in Loyola decided to kind of take up this issue um, and um, eventually passed some legislation around forbidding schools to refer families to municipalities for this practice. Um, and so I think that that is an example of how Loyola really fosters that um, you know, kind of work. Um, and then at the same time, it's, it's great that like Miranda and Kathleen Hurstman at Loyola are doing a lot of work educating school administrators um, and, and these practices and how they can be really, really um, punitive to families. Uh, so yeah, I would, I, I think that everyone wants to do this. We just happen to be at a place that it's easier to do. It sounds like there's a lot of different angles and approaches and a lot of intersections with the law that you were able to experience during your education law curriculum and your experiences um, with practicums at Loyola. And thinking about that full court press analogy, really, you know, doing everything possible full force to tackle these issues. So there were a couple of things that you mentioned that I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about. In particular, you talked about legislation and a lot of the focus for us today on our in our conversation is gonna be about what lessons we can learn from legislation and the power it has to do some really awesome change in this work. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk specifically about Senate Bill 100, which was passed in 2015. And I just wanted for you to talk to a little, talk a little bit about what this law says and maybe a little bit about the rationale behind the law. I do know that you worked you know, directly on this when you were in law school. So I'd love to hear your, your views on that. Yeah, so I, I, had, I had nothing to do with the passing of SG100. Um, just, just want to be very, very clear. Uh, I just, it was passed when I was in law school and I think getting the word out was a part of our work um, in the education advocacy program. Um, so yeah, the, the idea with SB 100 is that there was this recognition of the school to prison pipeline and Illinois um, legislators, you know, I think were really incredible and in that they listened to youth saying that this, that there was this practice of ticketing kids in school for their behaviors. Um, and there was some really amazing reporting that was done that, that revealed how common this practice was, how um, some charter school networks um, in Illinois were making a lot of money um, from this practice and that it was basically being, you know, kind of this money was being made by very low income families. 
Um, and so SB 100 was passed saying that schools are not to issue any monetary fines for behaviors in school. Um, additionally, they put in some requirements around like, you know, just saying that suspensions and expulsions are to be a last resort. There aren't to be like zero tolerance policies. Um, and when students are going to be out of school for, you know, four days or longer, schools are supposed to first exhaust all appropriate and uh, available behavioral interventions um, instead. And so it, it also gave families the power to appeal suspensions um, uh, on those bases if, if those things were not provided. Thank you, Jackie. That's a great background into that bill. And I, as I, as you know, I taught here in Chicago and there's something in particular about just to give some of our listeners that, you know, haven't been in the classroom, maybe haven't worked in schools uh, to give them a, a little bit of that um, importance of why less punitive measures are really important to the goals of schools. And so something that I have said, and uh, you've said something very similar, which I uh, think is really interesting, but something I've said before is that schools are really the entryway to citizenship and how we treat students in schools really models for students, how they are to be treated by the world and, you know, what kind of citizens they're going to be. And so something you've said that's very similar is that the role of a school is to, you know, create kind and empathetic citizens. What, how how does this bill uh, help us to do that? Yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's a recognition that children and youth are going to make mistakes and schools should kind of work with youth and families to help them learn from these mistakes rather than creating records that follow them for the rest of their lives and can change and damage the trajectory of their lives. Um, and so I think it's a push to use more restorative measures um, to be kinder and more empathetic in, in their response to behaviors. Um, I think that behaviors are a symptom of, you know, a, a underlying issue. Um, and it, it's a, a cry out for help for services and schools are in the best position to be the ones to figure out like what are those services that that youth needs in order to make better choices. Um, and so I think that to, you know, what has been done in the past is a lot of like, you know, kind of turning their backs on youth and being like, how dare you? Um, which is just so frustrating because it's like, we, we know that it is developmentally appropriate for students to make mistakes. Their frontal cortexes are not as developed. They are not developed until they're in their mid twenties. So they're going to act irrationally. They're going to make mistakes. We, I made mistakes when I was, you know, a youth, um, lots, everyone did. It's just that the, the consequences of those mistakes have become more and more and more severe and are really at odds with what we know about youth. Thank you for adding additional context to the importance of restorative practices 
what this means for youth development as well. So despite Illinois law banning schools from issuing fines, there has been a lot, you know, in the news and in recent years that, you know, connect to this issue. So can you tell me, Jackie, a little bit about what's been going on, you know, in the state of Illinois since the bill was passed? Yeah, so a lot's been going on. So um, I think like what what we have seen is schools know that they're being watched um, for how often they're suspending and expelling kids. And so what they're doing now instead is they're trying to keep these suspensions off the books. And so what that will look like is calling the parent and saying, your kid is acting up, come and, come and pick her up. She's not welcome back at school until you medicate her or until you get a doctor to diagnose her with something um, just or, you know, come and get her for the day. Um, I would call that an improper suspension and that there should be paperwork kind of documenting um, that suspension, but that's not happening. And, and there, the schools aren't documenting those conversations. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of like going undetected how, how often this happens. Um, the other thing that's happening, and this is not happening in Chicago um, to CPS's credit, uh, but in schools outside of Chicago, uh, schools are referring kids to the municipalities um, for, even though, you know, that law exists saying, you know, since 2018, saying schools are not to refer kids to municipalities for truancy. Um, they're referring, they're still referring kids for truancy, and they're also referring them for um, all kinds of behaviors that occurred in school. Um, so if, if a student participates in a fight, they might be cited for disorderly conduct or um, you know, damage of property or things like that. Um, and so they're kind of getting around the fact that schools aren't allowed to issue these fines and they're using the municipalities to do it instead. Knowing that the uh, suspensions and expulsions are being, you know, more closely regulated and watched. Schools have, in some ways, you know, found schools outside of Chicago have found uh, a loophole, let's say a legislative loophole mm -hmm. that is, you know, affecting, affecting students. And federal data has shown that Illinois schools suspend and expel Black students at disproportionate rates. And we do know that that's happening with tickets and fines too with the ProPublica and Chicago Tribune investigations that have been done, you know, the data does support, support this statement. So can you speak a little bit, Jackie, to the racial disparities at play um, and maybe other groups that are being disproportionately affected by these tickets and fines? Yeah, so you were mentioning um, the, the Chicago Tribune and ProPublica did a, a series of um, articles on this issue, uh, and the first being, uh, it's called like the price kids pay. Um, and, and basically what the reporters found is that while, you know, SB 100 and a lot of um, changes in school policies have improved the racial disproportionality that we saw in um, the suspensions and expulsions that are on the books, um, it's really still very, very apparent in this practice of ticketing. And I think that that's because this is like done through the back door, like we're talking about it. What this looks like is a 
somebody at the school's front office calling the municipality and giving a list of names of students who should be written up for tickets. And so all of the kind of regulations that are in place to protect against racial disproportionality are non-existent in this practice. And so of course it may, you know, it lets this kind of run rampant. Um, and so yeah, the, the investigative journalism revealed just how much um, you know, these practices are impacting students of color um, and also students with disabilities. I would say it's also impacting students who do not have stable housing because um, those students are more likely to be truant or late to school. Uh, so it was really, it, it was, I was just so excited that the reporters chose to cover this because like we in the education legal field have known that this has been going on for so long and feel like we've been like screaming into the void. So it was really exciting that this was kind of brought to mainstream's attention. But could you just uh, define what truancy means, Jackie? It just means that the student is absent from school um, or and it can also mean that the student is like more than five minutes late to school. Um, and so, you know, attendance in school is, is compulsory. Um, and so students um, who are not coming to school can be marked as truant. Um, and yeah, I, in Illinois, you know, schools have been getting families involved and, and citing them through the municipalities for that truancy, um, when really what they should be doing is, is calling a meeting to work with the family. And this is according to the law, it's not just a best practice, um, to talk about like supportive measures that the student needs um, and to help the child get to school on time. Uh, something you just alluded to that that's the law. So could you talk a little bit more about that federal legislation regarding people that are experiencing homelessness? Yeah, so the McKinney-Vento Homeless um, Assistance Act is um, meant to protect students who are in unstable housing. Um, and basically, it's an acknowledgement that these students are just having, their lives have been, you know, just pretty chaotic. And so the idea is like, let's keep this child in what's called like the school of origin or the school that they've been in um, since their housing got disrupted. Um, if that is like in the child's best interest, if that's what the child wants, let's keep that child in their school of origin. Um, no matter if the family is happens to not be living in that district anymore, we're not going to say, oh, you're no longer a resident of this district. You're not welcome here. Instead, we're going to provide supportive services to you, whether that be paying for your lift rides um, or whether that be tutoring after school um, to make up for maybe time that you were out um, instead of, you know, to, to provide consistency, to preserve the relationship that the youth has um, to kind of limit the disruption to their education as much as possible while that child's housing gets sorted out. So we've talked about truancy and the ways in which, you know, ticketing fines for truancy is really not getting at the heart of the issue that, you know, these families and students are in need of support. And that's, you know, that's owed to them by federal legislation. So I wanted to talk a little bit, what are some of the other 
the other violations that have led to ticketing? Um, so disorderly conduct is extremely common um, in response to fights. Um, I think I mentioned destruction of property, uh, ticketing for vaping is, is really, really common right now. Schools are really struggling with how to respond to that. Um, ticketing for like drug offenses and alcohol offenses in general, I would say is, is very, very common too. I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit uh, of Illinois. And we know that there are other states that issue tickets to students. And some of these states have much more severe consequences than Illinois. So in Pennsylvania, if a student gets a ticket, the student is ordered to appear in front of a magistrate, which means that the student is appearing at the lowest level of the adult court system. So unlike Illinois, that means students in Pennsylvania with tickets have a criminal record. So could you elaborate on that distinction? And, and what might you say to someone that says, hey, you know, clearly this is a problem in Illinois, but look at how much, you know, better we're doing than other states. What would you maybe say to that? Yeah, that's a very, very common attitude. And I would say when I've represented students in these hearings in front of administrative law judges, they, they do have that attitude of like, hey, well, you know, this, this kid could be in juvenile court. So you all should be grateful that he's not. Um, but I would say that in the eyes of that youth and the family, it, it doesn't feel all that different. Um, you know, they, they don't understand the difference between a judge and a hearing officer. Um, they see, you know, a police officer on the other side um, and they see that it's largely black and brown children who are on their side of the room and it's mostly white people on the other. Um, and they see that it's, this is causing their family a, a lot of stress, both financial and emotional. Um, so I don't, I think that that distinction is lost on young people and it, it does a ton of the same kind of harm in terms of like their relationships with the school. Um, so they know that it was the school that is the, like the, the school referred them to this process and that that's the school is the reason why they're there. Um, and so it just creates such mistrust and resentment. Um, and I think exacerbates whatever underlying issue brought that youth to this proceeding in the first place. Um, but the fact that it's quasi criminal um, rather than like fully criminal, it means that it's not expungible. Um, and, you know, it, it can impact um, a student's ability to get into college. Colleges can have questions like, have you ever been cited for anything other than a traffic ticket? Um, and I think that if a student has, you know, received a ticket for disorderly conduct, they, you know, someone could argue that they should answer yes to that. Um, it's also, it's, there's a record that's created where it can find, you know, the school could find the student's name, could find what they're accused of doing. Um, so yes, while it's, you know, not as horrible as creating a, a criminal record, I think it has broader ramifications than what people realize. It can, you know, the article talks about, and I encourage everyone to read it if they haven't, 
It talks about how it can really mess with a young person's credit when they turn 18. Um, I think, you know, could obviously mess with their ability to, to get like a, a great job. Um, so there are a lot of ramifications. Although these consequences might seem minor to more punitive measures when we compare Illinois to other states, they still do have major consequences and, and bring us back to that essential question on what is the purpose of a school, right? And, and what's the purpose of, of serving our youth and, and ultimately, you know, upholding the law and some of these really exciting measures that are designed to, to be less punitive. So that was really helpful. And so sorry to, I just got to say, cause like, we don't, we don't, I don't know what Pennsylvania has done, but like, I do know that Illinois legislators really tried to attack this school to prison pipeline through passing SB 100. And this, you know, practice of ticketing the, this other way through municipalities is totally spits in the face of the spirit of this law. Exactly. Yeah. I think when we, when we think about about solutions, when we think about what full court press advocacy looks like when it comes to continuing to dismantle this, this pipeline and this new, and dismantling this new loophole, what does full court press look like for this in particular, Jackie, in your opinion? Well, I think that we need new legislation under the school code that says that um, schools cannot refer students to municipalities for anything, whether it be truancy, fighting, et cetera. Um, it doesn't, that does not take away a school's ability to involve police if like a, a serious crime was committed on campus. I just want to state that. Um, and I think that we've seen from the fact that this, the truancy law was kind of, schools were going around this and, and you know, the state was not aware of it. I think we need monitoring that's put in place um, and, and enforcement. Um, and I think that we need to have increased professional development around SB 100. Um, and I would love to see some law around closing this like loophole of in the use of informal suspensions, you know, those phone calls. Um, and we need a lot of parent education um, and we need to give teachers and administrators more tools. We can't take away like this practice without helping them um, learn different ways to respond to behaviors. It involves people at every level, teachers, administrators, um, superintendents, and then of course, legislators, lawyers that are outside of the classroom and doing that, doing that work to advocate for students in schools. Um, but I know that you're also a fan of Abbott Elementary, correct? Of course. Have you <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of people are also fans. You know, they got seven Emmy nominations, which is really exciting. So for those of you that, you know, don't know Abbott Elementary is a very popular TV show right now. And in that article by Atang Ata that I sent you, Jackie, something I thought that was really, really interesting that the author brought up was that Abbott Elementary, you know, doesn't actually have any cops or school resource officers roaming the hallway. I love Abbott Elementary because it, it does let you, like, 
it does it, it does kind of create sadly a, a fantasy world it does feel like a fantasy right like we I feel like we as a society have so lost track of what the purpose of school is you know it, it is to create a safe nurturing environment for young people um, and like you said to help them become productive citizens um, and yet somehow we like lost our way and it became to me for a lot of our most vulnerable students, it has become sometimes a warehouse, sometimes a prison. I hate to like, I, I, I don't mean to, yeah, I, I just think that that is the reality. Um, and it is really, really sad. And I just think that Abbott Elementary, you know, I'm a, I'm so excited that so many people are so taken with the show because maybe it can like reinvigorate us and like bring us back to like what that mission was. And I know educators are so tired from COVID and all of like, like the stress uh, that that brought and, you know, the racial reckoning that has been happening in America, like everyone is tired, but we need to come back to this shared vision of what school can be. We, we owe it to our youth. And um, yeah, I'm just excited that that you uh, and, and so many of like the Sufio students and so many of the students at Loyola in general are seeing what education law can do. And you're so excited about empowering families and, and kind of making sure more kids can have success in school because it's, it's not designed for just the quote unquote perfect kids. It's designed to meet everyone's needs or it should be. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Naka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.